Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Mark chapter 7. Let's start in verse number 1. Mark 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees some of the scribes came together to him, being that's referring to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders." When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups And many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Traditions can be very dangerous. Men's traditions. Especially when the tradition is contrary to the word of God. And the scriptures talk about this. They talk about uh, the danger Go with me, if you, if you would, over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> and let's look at verse number 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men according to the basic principles of this world and not according to Christ. Now, again, you can see that the traditions he's talking about, the traditions of men are contrary to Christ. Now, if you ran your reference, you would find that the apostle Paul made reference in his epistles to good traditions. In fact, some traditions that he had started, that he advanced and advocated. And so, just on the on, on a, a general level, traditions aren't all bad. Not all traditions are bad. If they're in line with the word and they uh, enhance and support the word of God and, and are in harmony with the word of God, then they can be a good thing. But the traditions he's talking about here, notice Jesus said, you lay aside the commandment of God and reject the commandment of God to hold to your traditions. Here in Colossians says that, You're cheated when you hold these things, including the traditions of men, which are contrary to Christ. He said, it cheats you. And then if you would go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And look at verse number 18. 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So we have several things here that he tells us the traditions of men can produce in your life. (laughs) He said here it can result in aimless conduct. You know, life is too short to have aimless conduct. Uh, a more modern contemporary way of saying that would be people that are just spinning their wheels and going nowhere. Many times people are very busy religiously and they're making no advancement at all whatsoever. In fact, they can actually be going backwards thinking they're going forward. Isn't that right? He said, 
the, the traditions that they had received from their fathers uh, before, they were, before they were redeemed, these things resulted in aimless conduct. Paul said uh, that these traditions can, can result in, uh, you know, you missing out on what God has for you because you're pursuing something that's contrary to his plan for your life. Uh, Jesus talked about laying aside the commandments of God. See, traditions that are wrong are, there's more danger than just believing something that's wrong. That's bad enough to believe something that's wrong. But what Jesus said, in order to believe this wrong thing, this tradition of men, you had to disbelieve something that was right. So it's, it's more than just believing something wrong, is wrong, that's wrong. You had, to, you had to deny the truth to do it. So you've turned loose of something that is good and that could bless you. And you've taken hold of something that will result in aimless conduct and can deceive you. Well, that's not a good thing. Right? We need to always be careful in our lives that whatever we think and believe needs to be in line with the word of God. And frankly, the traditions of religious traditions, I, I suppose that perhaps there are more uh, traditions associated with religion than there are uh, associated with, with most anything else. I mean, there are just all kinds of religious traditions. Jesus talked about in his day. Now, his disciples weren't, you know, when he said they, you know, ate with the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes accused his disciples of eating with defiled hands. That didn't mean they were just nasty, you know. But this was ceremonial washing. There wasn't probably any soap involved. It was the rinsing. They just rinsed their hands. It was a ceremonial thing. So it wasn't getting rid of germs or anything like that, you know. Uh, but... You know, the disciples in the company of Jesus, they just followed Jesus' example. And, uh, you know, he and, and his disciples, they didn't, they didn't follow the commandments and the, and the traditions of men. Jesus was, uh, uh, you know, he was unconventional in his day. Amen. And it caused him trouble and it caused his disciples trouble. And, and the Jews said, you know, they're, they're not following our tradition. Well, you know, we, we need to be careful that we follow the word of God. And any time we come up upon something that we realize in our life that we're just doing out of tradition, we need to examine it and find out, is this, is this tra tradition based in, in the word of God or is it based in man's ideas? Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I want to talk about a tradition tonight. And uh, go with me, if you would, over to uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Been all kinds of theological battles that have raged over the interpretation of this verse. It clearly says that Jesus became poor. There's no question about that. The question is when did he become poor? When was Jesus poor? And the prevailing tradition that's been firmly established in the church world and it's permeated nearly all of society and, and, and all religions is that Jesus was a poor man when he was here on the earth. Now we know better than that if you know the scripture. But just because you know something doesn't mean you've rooted out the tradition. Amen? I mean, I've been following after the word and the word of faith and authority and victory and so forth for, for uh, a long, long time now. Uh, 
nearly 40 years. And every now and then, something will come out of my mouth and I'll stop and think, where in the world did that come from? That's not true. I know better than that. And, and it's something that was placed in me a long, long, long time ago. And I have to be alert to, the, to these things and always judge. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that idea, why did I say that? Why did I say that? Is there any scriptural foundation for that? And sometimes even, even after nearly 40 years of, of, you know, being in the word, I'll uncover something that, you know, has just been something that I, I, I just thought and, and really didn't think about why I thought it. But the word of God will shine the light on it. Amen. Well, this idea was Jesus poor. And uh, most religious people believe he was a poor man when he was here. We've talked tonight already. Brother Dave talked about uh, Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you. Amen. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. God wants us to prosper. Well, you have to have the right kind of understanding of Jesus. If you have a traditional idea, even if you don't think about it very much, if it's deep, deeply seated somewhere back in the, in the uh, dark recesses of those old folds of brain matter, you know, and somewhere in the back of your brain somewhere, uh, it'll come out at the most inopportune time and it can bring you into bondage, can trip you up. Amen. One of the arguments used by those who oppose the idea of material prosperity for Christians is that Jesus was poor during his time here on earth. From his birth in a stable to his ministry where he had no place to lay his head to his crucifixion between two thieves and his burial in a borrowed tomb. From birth to death, Jesus lived in a state of poverty, just didn't have anything. That's the prevailing opinion of most people. And, uh, you know, this traditional idea of Jesus's poverty has been repeated so often and it's been passed down for so long that most people just acknowledge it and believe it and never even stop to think, could it be not true? Is there any support for this idea? And, and this is one of the most uh, widely held and the most uh, uh, pervasive traditions in all of Christianity. I mean, it goes way back, not just a few centuries. I mean, it goes way back past the Middle Ages before the church, you know, before the world even entered into the Middle Ages. This idea of Jesus's poverty goes back centuries and centuries and centuries. And, uh, you know, if you have a vision of Jesus being a poor man, then uh, it's gonna uh, certainly add some dignity to poverty. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, if, if Jesus was poor, then that dignifies poverty, makes it noble. And it also, if Jesus was poor, if that's the idea that you have in your mind, that Jesus was, uh, you know, uh, destitute, that he was somehow uh, lived his life, uh, you know, as a, as a saintly vagabond, you know, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, lived a life of extreme austerity even privation, if, that, if that's your view of Jesus, that, this, that he was a holy man and he had none of this world's goods, it, it embellishes and nobilizes the idea of living that way. And it also tends to discredit or demonize people who live the other way. Isn't that right? Now, how many of you are aware that in our culture, it's very popular to demonize the rich? How do we describe them? Oh, they're filthy rich. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's a big problem in society. And it affects people's, people's view 
of the world. It affects their political leanings. And, and there's, this, this, there's this distrust and animosity and suspicion and condemnation in the midst of admiration because poor people, I mean, rich people, you know, are not to be trusted because they're, they're, they're not fair. They probably got their riches in an, in an evil way. They probably stepped on people to get their riches. And, and so they're, they, they couldn't, more than likely, they're not nice people. But I'd like to have some of that because I would be nice. I, I would be different if I was rich. No, you, you would join the dark side. <laughs> the supposed dark side of riches, amen. Uh, the truth is, as we will see from the Bible, there is no way Jesus was poor. Uh, he was not impoverished, he was not indigent, he was not needy in any way. But there's been, you know, and, and, and I know you know that up here, but do you know it in here? Because if, see, if you know it in here, it affects your worldview. It does. You know, your spiritual views, your spiritual understanding of things affects everything. Well, it should. Isn't that right? It, it, it'll, de it'll determine how, how you relate to people and to events and everything around you. And so it's important that, that this uh, very prominent, very well-established, widely held view gets completely washed out of you. And, and, and the word of God, and you say, well, you know, you've got to show me that, it's, that there's a reason to wash it out. Well, we're going to, the washing of the water of the word will wash it out. Amen. Jesus' birth. Go over to Luke chapter one. Some of this will be review to some of you. Luke chapter one, hallelujah. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, Luke chapter two, I wrote that in my notes wrong. Luke chapter two, verse number one. In those days came to pass that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, and so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This, this, just this pictorial image, just this, this concept and this image that is so uh, deeply ingrained in everyone's consciousness in, in the Western world of Mary and Joseph, and their humble surroundings, in the nighttime, bright, brilliant star overhead, angels singing, a glorious atmosphere, and it was gloriously poor. And it was just, it just there, there's such a specter and such an awe of God, the Son of God. It's born in a, man, a manger is an animal's feed trough. He was, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feed trough where they fed, you know, put hay and stuff to feed livestock in, in, a, in a stable. And, and, this, and this idea that, that Jesus came into the world in abject poverty is uh, uh, based, you know, a lot on this image. Well, why was he in a, a, a stable? Why was he laid in a feed trough? It says in verse number... Three, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. That means that a, there were a lot of people on the move. A lot of people were out of town and a lot of people were in town. 
There are a lot of people in Bethlehem who had left Bethlehem. And there are a lot of people that didn't live in Bethlehem who had come to Bethlehem. So there was a lot of movement going on. People were going to the, the city of, their, of their, uh, their, their Jewish heritage, their tribal uh, 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 cities, where, wherever they and their uh, tribe was from. Joseph, because he was the house and lineage of David, he went to Bethlehem. And so all these people are on the move. And uh, so there was an unusual number of out-of-towners in Bethlehem this particular night. Isn't that right? And it says uh, that there, there was no room for them in the inn. Not a inn, the inn. That indicates there was one hotel. One motel, probably. We'd probably call it a motel, if that. One place to stay for visit. Bethlehem was not a tourist city. It was not a tourist destination. It wasn't, you know, on, on a place where people flocked to for vacation. And uh, so there was no infrastructure, you know, for, for uh, uh, and no need for uh, a lot of places for visitors today. And so it indicates there was, there was, there was only one inn because there was no room in the inn. So uh, it wasn't because Jesus and his, it wasn't because Mary and Joseph was, were poor. It wasn't because they couldn't afford a room. It, it, and it says very clearly that they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. That's the reason. Now that's God's account of the reason. That's what the Holy Spirit said. Why? Because there was no room for them in the end. That means that that was the reason. It means that there wasn't another reason. They had to have been prepared. They came to town, evidently, they had to have come to town prepared to rent a room. That means they had the money to rent a room or, or they had something to barter with. In other words, they had something of value that they could give in exchange for renting a room for the night or for several days, however long they would uh, plan to be there and need to be there to go through this process of registration. So they had the means. Now it has to mean that or else this scripture is, is deceiving. If that's not the real reason, if they didn't have the money, it doesn't matter. If they didn't have the money, it doesn't matter whether there was any room. Have you ever known people that uh, in trying to uh, explain something, they'll give an alternative reason for their decision or for something other than the real reason? That, that, that's a pet peeve of mine. Just tell me the real reason. Don't, don't, the, the other thing might be true, but it's not the reason. So don't pass it off as the reason. And we do that sometimes because we want, to, we, want to help, we want to keep from hurting somebody's feelings. So we don't tell them the real reason. We don't want to go out with them to dinner. Or the real reason, we don't want the, to lend them something. The real reason might be that every time you lend it to them, you can't get it back. Or they tear it up. And so you'll come up with an alternative reason. Well, you know, you know that's about real close to lying. <laughs> I think it's real close. That is deceptive at any, at any rate, isn't that right? Well, I don't believe the Holy Spirit was trying to deceive us here. <laughs> isn't that right? <laughs> Boy, I struck a chord with somebody. <laughs> No, the reason was not that they didn't have the money. They, they obviously had the money. They, you know, God would not have entrusted his son into the hands of an irresponsible man and woman. I've had people before, you know, not so much in, in recent times, but when we were in the old, old building in town, every now and then I would, because I, particularly when our children were young, and the house was busy and loud all the time, you know, and we didn't have an extra bedroom. I didn't have a room for an office, a study at home. And so I, my study was down at the church. And so very often I would go down at, at nighttime, Friday night, Thursday night, Saturday night, sometime, you know, and uh, I'd be down at the church at, at night 
you know, preparing my message and just reading and studying and, and, uh, you know, we'd get a knock, I'd get a knock on the door and I'd go out and it's, you know, somebody there wanting a handout. And, uh, you know, they'd come in and, and they'd say, well, you know, I've, I, I've, I'm, most of the time a woman would come in and she and her family are traveling. The, the, the old man, they leave him in the car because they think a woman is getting, you know, softer touch, you know, and, and, oh yeah, we're on our way down to, you know, somewhere we're up from somewhere on our way down and we don't have any money. We're out of gas and we don't have any money and we've got four kids and can you help us? And so I'd start questioning them. You mean to tell me you started out from Tupelo and you're going to, to Winter Haven to see relatives and you only had enough money to make it to High Springs? You took your children out on the road and you didn't, have any, you didn't even have gas money? How irresponsible are you anyway? People don't expect to be, you know, cross-examined that way. But people need, to, people need to take responsibility for themselves. And I mean, I'd blister them really good sometimes, you know, because I knew it was a con game. I knew what was going on. I mean, you mean to tell me you, you took those children, I said, I, what I ought to do, instead of giving you money, I ought to call the HRS. I really ought to report you and, and, and have you arrested for endangering the lives of your children. Is that, would that be fair? Yeah. Now, occasionally, you know, you, you, you'd cross-examine somebody, you'd find out that there was a real unusual situation where, you know, they had fallen into, uh, uh, you know, a desperate situation of no, uh, 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 nothing of their own, you know, no fault of their own. But most of the time, it wasn't that way. Well, God would not have trusted Jesus, his son, uh, to Mary and Joseph if they were not responsible people. So I can assure you when Mary and Joseph started out for Bethlehem, they had all of their bases covered. They had everything they needed for the journey and it says they couldn't find a room because, because there, was, there was no room, amen? Hallelujah. Uh, in his early life, we, you go back to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two. So the idea is to start with that Jesus was born in poverty is not true. It's not supported by the scriptures at all. What we just read does not show us Jesus in the manger because he was poor. We find Jesus in the manger and in that stable and in that feed trough because of overcrowding, something completely beyond their, uh, uh, their ability to, to, uh, to plan for. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter two, it says that uh, the wise men, we won't read all of this because I know you're familiar with the story of the wise men. These magi came from the east because they had uh, heard of Jesus. They had heard of the, of the coming king of the Jews and they had seen his star. And so they came to worship him. They came to Herod and uh, they said, you know, where is the king of the Jews? And of course, this didn't please Herod a whole lot because, you know, he doesn't want an, uh, a competing king on his hands. And so, you know, he, uh, he feigned interest, like he's really, well, show me, go find him. And when you find him, come back and tell me and I'll go worship him. Of course, we know from the scripture that what he wanted to do was for the wise men to find him, come back and tell him so he could go and kill him. Okay. So the wise men, at any rate, they went and they found Jesus. Because the Herod inquired of the Jews and they said, well, the, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so uh, the wise men went to Bethlehem and they found Jesus. And it says that they came to worship him as the king of the Jews. And uh, verse 11 says, when they had come into the house. Now this was some time, they were still in Bethlehem, but they were no longer in the manger. They're in a house. Okay, so Jesus' parents had a house. They were still away from their home town of Nazareth, but they were in, they were in a house, okay, in Bethlehem. It says, when the, the wise men had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Now, historians believe that Jesus might have been about two years old because uh, uh, when Herod found out that he had been... Uh, 
deceived by the wise men because they went back a different way. He went and ordered the, the slaughter of all of the male children in that region from two years of, of age and under. So we're guessing that, that he had found out that uh, uh, this had happened about two years ago. So Jesus was apparently about two years old. So when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I know I've asked this question before, but I have no idea what myrrh is. What is it? It's a, a spice. I don't know if it's valuable or not, but it, it, it might be, or it might just be associated with royalty. But the thing is, these, these men brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. They, these weren't trinkets. The, you know, we have little Christmas plays, you know, with children and they, and they have these little, you know, Mardi Gras trinkets that, that they show, you know, that they're given to Jesus. This wasn't junk they were given Jesus. They were convinced that he was a king and he was. Amen. And you, you don't come to a king and present junk. more contemporary times. You know where I'm going, but we won't go there. <laughs> you don't present a head of state junk. <laughs> you don't present king, kings junk. They came to worship him and they presented him gold. So you can, you can uh, only honestly and fairly imagine that there was some substance to this, that it was extremely valuable. People didn't, people didn't have, you know, common people didn't have a lot of gold. They had copper, you know, coins and sometimes silver coins, but gold uh, then like now is a, was especially precious. And so I don't imagine it was just a gold coin or two. They brought, they opened up their treasures. So it was, it was described as, as, as being a treasure. So there was a lot of money involved here. And so uh, Jesus wasn't born poor and he certainly wasn't poor when he was two years old because he had, he had the, the, the bounty of a king. He had what a king would have. I mean, these people brought him something befitting a king and they laid it at, uh, at his feet. And so, uh, you know, we know the rest of the story that uh, the angel, an angel appeared to Joseph and warned him of what Herod was up to and told him to go into Egypt. And so he fled with the child, he and, and Mary and, and Jesus, his you know, little two-year-old, they, they, they fled and lived out of, out of Palestine for a period of time. And uh, it wasn't until after Herod had died that they were free to come back. So no doubt this money or this gold, the value of all of them, the frankincense and myrrh probably had a lot of value as well. All of this was no doubt used to sustain them while they were on the run, living in a foreign land, living away from home. You know, you just need to be where God tells you to be. Amen. You need to be led of the Holy Spirit. Why, was, why were Mary and Joseph still there approximately two years later? I don't know, but it was a good thing they were. Isn't that right? God always sends provision where he's called you. Amen. And, and where, he, where he leads you, he'll provide for you. And so they were there and, and the money came in enough to sustain them during this period and quite possibly well beyond this time. We don't know. But we know that Jesus was not poor on this day, that's for sure. We see him, uh, actually, you, you would have to say he was rich. If you had the bounty that comes to a king, you're a rich man. Isn't that right? Uh, when he was 12 years old, we find out that his family made their annual trip to Jerusalem. And that was an expensive thing. You know, to, to have the money to travel. That, 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 that takes, it takes money for family to load up, you know, the whole family and to travel. And so we see Jesus with his family when he was 12 years old traveling to Jerusalem. And uh, he was in a company of his, of his kinfolk and uh, 
Uh, they stayed there several days. And then when they left, you remember Jesus, they had gone, uh, you know, uh, a day or so. And then they discovered Jesus wasn't in with their relatives where they thought he was. And so they didn't know where he was. They went back to, G- to Jerusalem looking for him. He was in the temple. You remember that. So in other words, the, what I'm saying is the family uh, had a reasonable amount of means to travel. And then as a young man, he worked a respectable trade. He was a carpenter. Go to, go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. When Jesus <clears throat> he had been out traveling in his ministry, this is after he's in his ministry, he returned to his hometown, uh, to Nazareth, uh, or to, his, to the, the town of his birth. And uh, the people said in verse number two, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is, is this which is given him that such mighty works are performed by, in his hands, by his hands? Is, not, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Josie and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with, with us? So they were offended at him. Notice Jesus was well known. He, he worked an honorable trade and he was well known for his work. He was known as Jesus the carpenter. So again, he wasn't poor. He, he obeyed the scriptures and he worked with his hands. And if we believe the Bible that God blesses everything a righteous man puts his hand to, we have to know Jesus was blessed in carpentry work. Because he, 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 uh, he was a righteous man. Isn't that right? He qualified. So everything he put his hand to prospered. Everything he did, God blessed it. Isn't that right? So he could not have been a poor carpenter. He probably had, he probably had the finest carpenter shop. He, he, he no doubt, because he was known for this, he, he no doubt, and, and this would just dovetail with our opinion of the Lord Jesus that everything he would do would be excellent. His carpentry work was probably beyond uh, uh, anything that, that people were accustomed to, just extra fine work. And when you do extra good work, you get extra good pay. And you have, more, and you have uh, uh, clients that'll stick with you. You have return business, repeat business. You're never, if you do good work, You'll never be without customers. Just another lesson. So we know Jesus was not poor this time in his, in his life as, as, a, as a young man. He was a, a respected uh, tradesman. And then we see Jesus entering into his ministry. Now in Jesus's ministry, he had a traveling ministry. He traveled extensively all throughout Palestine, all through Galilee and Judea and you know, up in the mountains and down, you know, in the Jordan River and, and uh, you know, all around and back to Jerusalem. And he, he and his team traveled extensively and he had a traveling team, an evangelistic team, group of people that traveled with him. We know there were 12 disciples, but we also from other scriptures know other people traveled with him as well. So he had this team on the road and at, at least for his, his 12 disciples because they were his helpsmen. Uh, ministers. They were there to help him. Every time he went into a town and, and in, in his meetings, you know, they did crowd control and they, and they ran errands for him. So they were his support staff. Well, you know, they're working for him. They've got to be provided for. They've got to be cared for. Can you imagine being out on the road and being responsible for, for, you know, yourself and 12 other adults for three and a half years? This team traveled around. Think of that. You know, clothes wear out in three and a half years. Shoes wear out. Clothes wear out. You get hungry. So Jesus had to provide food, clothing, shelter, everything. In fact, he provided everything for the disciples. When they had any kind of a need, they came to Jesus and he met their need. He could not have been poor. There's just no way he, Jesus was poor in his earthly ministry. Isn't that right? Go to, to Luke's gospel, chapter eight. Luke eight, beginning in verse one. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village 
preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. Notice, he, he went through every city and village. It takes, it takes provision to do that. I mean, if you're not eating, you're not going to be on the road very long. You're certainly not going to have 12 dedicated followers. Isn't that right? If, you, if your needs aren't being met. And we know without looking at it, it's not if you know the Bible, if you know uh, your, your, your New Testament and the Gospels, you know that Peter and John... And, and some of the others were very successful fishermen. And they left their, their prosperous businesses that they owned and followed after Jesus. We know they're not going to follow him very long if they're not getting fed, if, if their needs aren't being met. Isn't that right? And some of them had families. So they're having to send something home if they're honorable men, isn't that right? They're sending something on. So they're having to have some income. There's, there's some income coming to this team on the road. Well, you know, that's, is, is that right? I mean, is that consistent with the scripture? Yes. The worker is worthy of his hire. The workman is worthy of his hire. Paul said, you know, that quoting the Old Testament, you're not to muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. Then he asked this question, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He said, now, that Old Testament provision that you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain, was that commandment given because God cares for oxen? No, he said, that's for our benefit. That, that injunction in the Old Testament that you don't muzzle the ox that, that treads out the grain, God... Paul said, God said that so that we would know it applies to ministers. Well, then uh, Jesus had to have had income in his traveling ministry. Came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. They provided for him from their material means. So these, Jesus had ministry partners. He had people that, who, people who had means. You think of just one of these. You know, uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa. This is Herod's uh, steward. He, he's, he, a steward is someone entrusted with, with someone else's uh, things. So Chusa had to have been uh, a wealthy person because he's entrusted with Herod's uh, uh, things. His money, his, his property, whatever it was that he had. So he's an influential person. You know, he's got money. Well, you know, if a man's got money, his wife's got money. <laughs> if a man's got money, a wife has more money. Because she's got his and hers. <laughs> Amen. Well, what did they do with this money? They provided for him from their substance, from their resources, so Jesus had these, these ministry partners who supported his ministry. They gave generously into his ministry and that's what enabled him to stay on the road. That's what we do. When, when ministers come by, that's our job is to support them, amen, and, and, and to provide for them so that they can stay on the road, amen. And, uh, and so Jesus had that, so, so he had a cash flow going on. Isn't that right? Amen. Uh, then there's this scripture. Go over here in the eighth chapter. Go over to the ninth chapter. Luke chapter nine. And look at verse number 58. Luke nine fifty-eight. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is one of those so-called proof texts that people use in support of their tradition that Jesus was poor. Because, you know, poor old Jesus, born in a manger, uh, 
destitute, you know, in life, just barely getting by, didn't even have a place to lay his head. Just had to sleep out, and, you know, with the animals at night and sleeping, you know, with dew all over him in the, in the morning, had no place to lay his head. Well, let, let's, let's look at the context, like context. Like I said, this idea that he was some sort of a, you know, saintly, not, not, not in a bad sense, but a, you know, a saintly uh, vagabond, just, you know, kind of uh, living, you know, with, with barely enough to stay alive. Well, if you read the full context of this, you'll see that in verse 51, it says it came to pass when, when the time had come for him to be received up. Does anybody know what that means? Go to the cross. When the time had come for him to go to the cross, okay? Looking at chapter nine, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a, a village of, of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now, how, how do you think they were going to prepare for him? They were going to provide, they were going to find some place for him to sleep, live, isn't that right? Some place for him to stay while he was traveling through. Well, you can't do that if all you have is a, is a smile on your face. You're going to have to have some money to do that. So he sent his, his assistants ahead of him. And they entered the city of, of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. See, the Samaritans, they didn't like Jerusalem. The, the Samaritans and, and the, the people that lived there, they were sort of half uh, Jews. And they were in conflict with the Jews in Jerusalem. There was animosity between the two groups. Because the Samaritans thought that they were the true Jews and the Jews in Jerusalem were, 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 were not. And the Jews in Jerusalem looked at them as half-breeds. And so there was this animosity between the two of them. And uh, Jews very often wouldn't even go into Samaria. If they were traveling, they'd go around it. And so on this particular occasion, of course, we know there's another occasion where Jesus met the woman at the well outside of Samaria. And his disciples came to him and said they were surprised that he was even talking to her, being a woman of Samaria. That's the animosity between the two. But Jesus sent his, his disciples, his, his agents ahead of him to prepare a place for him. But when they found out that he was planning to go to Jerusalem, then they just rejected him. So you're not staying here. So they didn't receive him. And so uh, when his disciples, James and John, you know, they were called the sons of thunder. They were a little hot-headed. Anybody hot-headed in here have a little bit of a temper? Well, you know, you've got some company. His disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Hey, they were, they were beginning to uh, feel their oats a little bit, weren't they? Spiritually speaking. They'd seen a little bit of power, you know, and... and uh, you know, they'd been sent out and, you know, and, and uh, to lay hands on the sick and so forth and to seen some miracles and they, they were feeling a little frosty. They said, uh, we'll just call fire to come down from heaven. Jesus turned and, and rebuked them and said, you, are, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. We do. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, as it happened, now it happened as they journeyed on the road. Where were they going? to another village on the way to Jerusalem. And it said in the previous verse, and they went to another village. I just noticed that's in red letters and it shouldn't be. Is that in red letters in your Bible? In my Bible, it's, it's in red letters. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's the end of the quote. That's in red letters. But in my Bible, the next sentence is in red. Shouldn't have been. It is in mine. Throw it away. No. They went to another village. So they're on, their, they're on in route to another village on their way to Jerusalem. And it happened as they journeyed that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holds and birds of the air have no nest, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was referring to what had just happened to him in Samaria, that he had just been denied that particular night. He had been denied a place to stay. And so he was said, you know, you follow me and it's, you, know, you, have to, you have to know that it's not always the easiest thing. Isn't that right? 
Sometimes it costs a little bit to follow God in the short term. In the long term, of course, it pays. Amen. Uh, now, if you, if you go over to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, you see another picture, though. There's another reason why he said, I have no place to lay my head. He said, I, he was on the way to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he was going to enter into that whole controversy surrounding the last days of his, of his time here and be arrested and, and tried and go to the cross. That probably wasn't what that person was expecting when they said, I'll follow you wherever you want to, wherever you go. In uh, uh, Matthew chapter four, look at verse number 12. Now, when Jesus heard, this is earlier in his ministry, this is in the beginning of his ministry. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. He came, he le leaving Nazareth, Nazareth was his home. That's where he had the carpenter business. That's where he had lived the first 30 years of his life. But when he began his ministry, he left Nazareth and came and dwelt at Capernaum. Williams translation says he made his home in Capernaum. Kenneth Weiss translation says he established his permanent home in Capernaum. So he had, a, he had a home residence. Now, I don't know whether he owned his own home or whether he stayed with somebody else, but he had a place he called home and it was in Capernaum. That was home. Uh, go to Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine. Look at verse number one. So he got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town, his own city. So again, Jesus had a hometown now. He wasn't a vagabond. He wasn't somebody that just lived out under the trees. Now, it's true that he traveled in his, in his ministry. He and his team would go on the road, but they would come off the road. And when they came off the road, they went home. I don't travel hardly at all. But when I travel, I'm away from home. I still don't sleep in, uh, under the stars uh, I sleep in some place I've hired to sleep in or I sleep in somebody's home, a friend's house or something. Uh, but then when I come home, that's where I live. So Jesus, it says here, he came to his own town. And then go with me over to uh, Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two. And this is particularly revealing. Mark chapter two. Verse number one, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. Mark two, verse one, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. Capernaum was Jesus's hometown. When he left Nazareth, he, he moved his, his residence to Capernaum. That's where he lived. And there was a house associated with where he lived in Capernaum. Because when he returned, the, the news got out that he was home, that he was in the house, his house. Now, again, I don't know if he owned the house. I, I, I tend to think it was somebody else's house. But, it, you know, if you're, if, you, if, if you're living permanently with somebody, that's home. Isn't that right? It's, that's, not, that's not sleeping with the mules. Isn't that right? That's, that, that's having a home. Might not be your, might not, you might not own it, but that's where you live. Okay. So it says that it, it was heard that he was in the house. So he had a house in Capernaum of some kind. Amen. Now we also know in Jesus's ministry and we're running out of time, so we won't look at it. But uh, remember the story of Jesus when he needed tax money, the disciples came to him and said, you know, we have to pay taxes. What are we going to do? He said, go to, to, uh, to the, to the uh, sea and cast in, and when you, and when you, uh, the first fish that you pull up, look in his mouth. And they looked, and there was a, a coin in there sufficient to pay all of their taxes. That's pretty good. That's, that's supernatural provision. Isn't that right? That's supernatural provision. And we also know that on multiple occasions, people, the multitudes came to him and didn't have anything to eat. I mean, they were, they, were, they were hungry. And the disciples said, you know, we, we need to send these people away or they're gonna pass out on us. 
They've been with you for three days and they're, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be falling out on the ground here. We're going to have a mess on our hands. Jesus said, feed them. They said, we don't have anything. One, one boy's got a, you know, got a, a sack lunch. He said, bring that. And he broke it and he fed thousands of people. So you can see in Jesus's ministry, he was never without. He, God provided a good lifestyle for him. He was not, he was not poor by any means. See, being rich, that we have different ideas of what rich is. But rich can mean just a full supply. When you have every need that's met and you don't need anything, that's one definition of being rich, having a full supply. Now, some people don't believe they're rich unless they have so much stored up that they could never use, never spend. Then they consider themselves rich. Well, that's rich too. But that's not the only definition of rich. So you can see, here, here's, I'm going to have to close tonight. There are other points to make, but here's, here's a good way to sum this up. God always provided for the Lord Jesus Christ. He had enough to do what God had called him to do. You, if, and he lived by faith. He lived by faith, God provided. He worked with his hands until the time came for him to go into another field of endeavor. Then he worked preaching the gospel. That was his job and God provided for it. Amen. You know, I've known ministers who, uh, people, I'll say this way, men that have gone into the ministry and they, they could never make an income off of it. You don't go into the ministry for money. If you do, you know, you're, you're mis, misguided. But you expect to, for God to bless you the workman is worthy of his hire. You expect to have, have income. You expect to God to provide for you and to meet all of your needs and to have enough. That's, I guess that's being rich. But I've known ministers when the years that I was an RMAI director, there were ministers that started churches and they never, they never flourished. They never had any money. They, they tried to pastor and, and they had to, to work, you know, a secular job and then tried to preach. And, you know, you, you can do that for a while because sometimes it's, it's necessary just to, to prove that you're going to stick to it and that you're going to do whatever sacrifice is necessary. Pa Pastor Angela and I had a period of time when we were young in the ministry where we, we really had to sacrifice and we had to do some things, you know, and, and God provided for us. But eventually the ministry is supposed to provide a living. And I've known these pastors, you know, after years and years and years, they're, they're t some of them had, had, when they called me, they had already taken what savings they had had before they went in the ministry and they were paying the bills of the church out of, their, out of their retirement income. They were liquidating this stuff to pay the monthly bills of the church. I said, don't do it. Don't, don't spend another thing. Do not take your personal money. That's not God. If God's behind this work, he'll fund it. God doesn't expect you to go broke doing his work. The, the, the local church is supposed to provide for itself. It's supposed to be self-supporting. What I think a lot of times, and I knew better than to tell anybody this, I'm, I'm smarter than I look. What I, what I knew to be the case sometimes and what I thought many times was you're not called because you've been, you've been with this group now for you know, all of these years, several, you know, maybe five, 10 10 years and you got six people and you don't have any income, wake up. You know, the, the, the call, and the anointing of God is just not there. If it's of God, eventually it's going to flourish. I don't mean, you know, 50 years from now. Amen. So anyway, uh, you know, Jesus had his needs met because he was doing what God called him to do. If you do what God's called you to do, whether it's working a trade or whether it's in ministry, do what God's called you to do. Whatever your field of endeavor is, live by faith and God will always meet your needs. He'll always provide enough for you to do what he's called you to do. Has God, has God ordained your life? If he has, then pursue it with all of your heart and know that God's provision will always be there. It doesn't matter what happens in the economy. It doesn't matter. You might say, well, that's easy to say. No, I'm talking by faith according to the word of God. We have the example of Jesus' ministry. There's miracle provision when you need it. Yeah. 
You, that, that's miracle provision. When you, when you go to the, to the sea and catch a fish and he's got money in his mouth, that's miracle provision. Amen. When you can take a, a, a small lunch of a, of a little kid and break it and feed thousands of people, that's miracle provision. Well, you think that's just for Jesus? God will miraculously provide for you if you're doing what he's called you to do. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.